calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. Everything woke turns to shit. Now well, my name is Tim. Most people call me Jim. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Hey, everyone, welcome back to the Done Right Podcast. It should come to no surprise to anyone who's been listening to this podcast for more than two episodes that I consider the state of Nevada my home. I went to school there, I enlisted out of the military. And I even came back to and went to University of Nevada, Las Vegas after I got out of the military. Nevadans have the same struggles as most of the people of the middle class in the United States. Americans on Main Street, in this case, Water Street, are hurting. They are living paycheck to paycheck and worrying about the next rent increase at the end of their lease. The American dream of owning a home or starting their own business has become unattainable. More and more of their money is going to the pump, while groceries and other commodities are just skyrocketing. Parents have to worry about sending their students to radical left indoctrination camps. Everywhere they look, they are drowning. And we have an administration that is asleep at the wheel while America's enemies circle the wagon. Americans need more unapologetically American-first candidates that care more about their constituents than the corporations that donate to them. For this, we have a very special guest with us today, Noah Majili. He's an attorney, a veteran, and a candidate for Nevada Congressional Des- District 3. Welcome to the program, Noah. James, it's great to be with you. Awesome. So, Noah, tell us a little bit about you and your connections with Nevada. What made you want to run for Congress in Nevada? I know, like, being an attorney, why would you want to bring that upon yourself, you know, especially in this polarization of politics that we have right now? I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. The political climate is so polarized and so nasty, so contentious. Um, really, you know, there's a lot of narrative control that goes on. There's a lot of suppression of dissent or marginalization of opposing viewpoints that diverge from, I guess, the prevailing regime media narrative. <clears throat> and since that's where I kind of spend most of my time Um, we get a lot of backlash on that but it's important because the ideas and the conclusions that I talk about are ones that as I go you know campaign around the state and 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 even around the country for fundraising purposes I I find really consistently people see things the same way Um, people are seeing the same things that I'm seeing and um, I'm giving a voice to a lot of those concerns, but I'm, I'm running as a father of young children who is really concerned that our country is headed in a direction that is, um, I think, shocking. You know, when I really put, when I connected the dots and looked at the big picture, took a step back and saw where we're going, kind of drawing on my professional experience as a army plans officer, um, seeing things big picture globally, what's going on. We're headed in a very dangerous direction where freedom, individual liberties, the things we've become accustomed to, self-expression, self-determination, medical autonomy, parental rights, all these fundamental issues that we enjoy here in the United States and take for granted are all in peril and under attack and under threat to the point where you know we may lose them. Um, it's It's something that's 
really scary when you think about the administration that's in Washington and the executive branch, the Biden regime, as I call them. And from my perspective, and everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but I'm absolutely 100% convinced that Biden was not legitimately elected in November of 2020. And a bunch of other races, I think, were stolen as well by corrupt Democrats working in concert with um, other influencers, possibly the Chinese Communist Party. So I, I look at the whole, all the work of the Biden administration that they've done. It's not just incompetence. I mean, people say, look, Biden's hopelessly incompetent and he's senile and that's why things are so bad. I just don't buy that. That doesn't make any sense. That's implausible. The reality is that they're doing, they're persecuting the American, free American people and our way of life and our traditions and our institutions in, a, in an intentional and systematic way. And ultimately where that leads is the destruction of the American currency, which we're well on our way toward now, um, where we have runaway inflation with no possibility of reining it in through interest rates because the Fed's hands are tied due to the $30 trillion of, in debt that we have accumulated, much of which was added over the last few years. But I believe, you know, we look at the invasion at the border. I mean, that's not an error. That's not a mistake. That's not inadvertent. That's just flagrant flouting of the laws that were legitimately enacted in the United States, passed by Congress, signed by the president. And they're not being obeyed by the administration. Um, they're actually breaking the law. They're breaking several federal laws that pro pro prohibit the type of conduct that the federal government is using our tax dollars to engage in, you know, t taking um, illegal aliens around the country and resettling them. There's, there's no authorization to do that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's, uh, it's against the law in the United States and federal law to, to do that. Um, you know, the, the Safe Fences Act of 2006 requires the Department of Homeland Security to secure the border. They're absolutely doing the opposite. They're using money to facilitate uh, an invasion of our country from people from all over the world. This is not, has nothing to do with ethnicity or anything this is this is literally people from all over hundreds a uh, hundred countries plus all over the world flooding in so i estimate over 10 percent of the residential population of the country currently is here illegally which is a huge burden and you know you combine the invasion the destruction of the currency the covid response measures which were an absolute disaster they caused far 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 more harm than they did any good at mitigating the effects of COVID or slowing its spread. Again, designed to weaken the middle class, weaken American families, make us more dependent upon the government, more susceptible to being ruled by fear and anxiety and testing out different control mechanisms. But where we're headed, we've lost the loss of our parental rights, the loss of our ability to have free and fair elections, the loss of our ability to speak freely and have our, our thoughts and our, our um, communications uncensored. And, um, we've lost our medical autonomy. So we don't really live in a free country anymore. And when I saw all that, you know, James, to kind of give you a long answer, I thought about my kids and I, I just thought there's no possible way I could sit, sit here and do nothing while we head in this direction, which ends up in authoritarianism, social credit system, um, complete loss of individual liberties and freedoms. And I, I, just, I need to fight for my, my kids and for my country. No, absolutely. And I 100% agree. You know, Nevada has a long history of 
having really influential uh, politicians in our state that, you know, are out there uh, dictating policy. Your uh, current future opponent, uh, Susie Lee, just has become a puppet, uh, lost in the in the vastness of the progressive party, um, really just not doing much, you know, just being an additional vote for the liberals, hasn't brought anything to the state. Um, meanwhile, we're looking, you know, into the state. What I like about Nevada and what I like to highlight about Nevada for a lot of people is it really um, encapsulates a lot of the things that are going on in the rest of the country. You know, a lot of middle middle class people, especially in your district, that were feeling the effects of the COVID lockdowns. We had 20 percent unemployment, you know, during the COVID lockdowns. A lot of people, uh, you know, left the state or were never able to get back into their career fields, despite having union jobs, despite having all the, you know, progressive safeguards and, and things of that nature. Um, and Nevada's, you know, really, really hurting to try and get back. And especially now we have these high gas prices, summer's coming. There's not a lot of extra spending money in the pocket to send uh, people to Las Vegas and Henderson for tourism, which is a big part of the state. Um, what, what do we do, you know, at a, at a federal level to help alleviate this with, with Nevada? Because you're seeing a stark difference, and I think a lot of Nevadans are, of the policies under Joe Biden and the policies under Donald Trump and how that has affected their livelihood. How do we bring back that thriving economy back to Nevada and other like middle-class areas that have just been absolutely decimated? Is it, is, are we beyond repair or can we fix it? No, we're, we, we have a great opportunity here in Nevada, particularly to really transform our economy with a lot of help from the federal level. If we had representatives who put together some, strategies to get Nevada on track to be an economic leader nationally and even uh, internationally in some particular sectors that we've neglected. So it's a matter of water, mining, and land. And basically what we need to do, so we'll just take a step back. We've looked at how national security in a big sense is dependent upon energy independence. We've seen, we've seen right now, you can just read the newspaper and see how you can't have national security unless you're energy independent because Western Europe and the Germans in particular, NATO notwithstanding, the mutual defense alliance that is NATO notwithstanding, they, they have no leverage to do anything to slow down the Russians or deter the Russians from advancing um, from their east into Ukraine because they're completely dependent upon the Russians for their energy. Uh, which was a conscious, intentional decision that was facilitated by the Biden administration as well. But in any case, now, because of their energy de dependent, and they need to be able to allow their citizens to stay warm, they need to buy that. And, and, and Russia sets the terms. It doesn't matter what Russia is engaged in. If, if you're dependent on Russian oil, then you're going to do what they say. So Russia's going to say to Germany now, look, you guys kicked us out of the international banking system. The United States did. So we can't accept dollars for dollars are useless to us. We can't accept dollars for our oil. So we're only going to accept rubles. And meanwhile, the Russians are accepting yuan from the Chinese for payment. So what does that do? Our sanctions pushing the dollar away from the petrodollar status where um, nations, huge energy nations like Russia and Saudi Arabia is being courted to do the same thing. Venezuela and Iran will be motivated similarly to do the same thing, which is stop using the dollar as the standard currency to trade petroleum products. That's where we are. But, it, you know, what they want to do, interestingly, is say, look, this, let's, 
let's exploit this moment of record high fuel prices to push towards a green economy, the adoption of a green economy, transition to a, a green economy. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it's it's a, an interesting suggestion. The, the, the problem with that is that's not going to solve our energy independence problem because the, the, the fundamental resources that are necessary for the green economy, whether it's rare earth elements or lithium for electric um, batteries um, or for solar panels, rare earths, whatever the case may be, these elements are not are not produced in the United States um, at all anymore. They used to be that we rely completely on China for the 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 ore and the the processing. So, I mean, for they, the Chinese control at least ninety percent of the world's global supply of rare earth elements. In fact, we had a huge reserve of those and. Afghanistan that we handed over to the Chinese, that the Biden regime handed over to the Chinese here just a short while ago. But the interesting thing is that, so that doesn't solve the problem to say like, we're, we're going to, we're going to switch from a petroleum based economy to a green economy because we're still dependent on a foreign dictatorship for, for the resources that are necessary to fuel that economy. But what we need to do is all, it's all of the above. So we need to increase all production of petroleum products in the United States and open up all of uh, all of the available opportunities to be energy independent and an ex net exporter for hydrocarbons but at the same time we need to develop mining in the united states and particularly in nevada where we have a lot of proven reserves of rare earth elements and lithium that exist here that are not being mined um, to the extent that they could or should be and that would be that would be transformative for the economy here we need to facilitate that the infrastructure bill that came out the you know build back broke plan really didn't have anything in for the two of the biggest areas that we need to really revitalize for, from the perspective of infrastructure as it relates to national security and domestic prosperity, which is dams and mining. <clears throat> so in Nevada mining, you need to restore that to global status to be something like the way Texas is globally for petroleum. But we, in order to do that too, we need to get more water. So our water allocation from the lower... Colorado River Basin Interstate Compact is is very very low. It's an artifact of a, a time that you know was nearly a hundred years ago when that allocation was made, when the population of the state of Nevada was like less than ninety thousand people, and the for in the whole state we only get four percent of the allocation from the lower Colorado River Basin, whereas California gets fifty nine percent and Arizona gets thirty seven percent. But that what we need. If you looked at it from population growth from the time that was made in 1928, we should have around 7%. So that needs to be renegotiated and, and that would nearly double our water supply. So that's part two. And the, the way we do that is among the states, the California representatives and the Arizona reps, or a few of them, and myself will co-sponsor a bill that will get federal fund funding to build new dams in California because they, they get a tremendous amount of beautiful, clear water from snow melt and rain that they dump and they just allow to flow right into the Pacific Ocean while their state burns from out of control wildfires and they're experiencing constant drought. But they don't they don't put any of their water in reservoirs because they won't build dams and they won't repair their aging, crumbling dam infrastructure that they have that's obsolete by at least at least 50 years compared to where they are for population and industry now. So we need federal money to get them to get their dams built, which will lower their consumption 
from the Colorado River considerably and overall consumption. And we renegotiate that and we get mining, we get a mining revitalized in, in, um, in Nevada. And the other thing we need to do is we need to get 67% of the land in Nevada is owned by the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. And that's a resource that's not being utilized. We need to get that privatized, denationalize, defederalize those lands and re return them to the counties so that they could be used by private investment to generate revenue and income and revitalize the economy. So if we got the land back, so I say, look, how do you make Yucca Mountain palatable for the people of Nevada? Uh, you, you say to the federal government, we'll take Yucca Mountain, which will bring tons of jobs and is, is, is necessary from a national security perspective because it takes, you know, waste that's located around the country at 130 different locations and barrels and puts it in a, in a safe location underground, but it brings a lot of economic activity to Nevada, but we'll take Yucca Mountain, but we get, we, we get all the, we get all the BLM land back too, as a part of that deal. So we get the BLM land back, we renegotiate the water rights, we re revitalize mining. And those three things together will really transform the economy of Nevada, bring jobs and investment from all over the world, international investment, families here all across the state, give the state of Nevada land back to Nevadans, let them use, utilize it. There's innovative new agricultural techniques that are out there. People are farming the desert. We've seen this um, with the cannabis industry in particular, where they're employing all these innovative new strategies, including putting DC current into the ground and all different new things where they're growing with great success in the desert. Well, we need to get our water nearly doubled, our mining back and get the land back. That'll transform the economy here. Absolutely. And so kind of the follow up question on the mining, uh, obviously, it's going to create a, a lot of new resources. Do you think that would provide enough resources to build those electric vehicles and, uh, you know, the renewable stuff that uh, is desperately needed in this country and make us more, I guess, independent on on those type of minerals uh, as a whole? Like what kind of impact do you think that has like like quantifiable, I guess, for people? Obviously, I know it's going to be really important, but like for for most people like how dramatic of an effect would that have like on say like trying to buy a tesla or you know or whatever yeah it, it'll have it'll have a dramatic effect in the sense that so as i said number one is it removes a huge national security vulnerability because we've seen our supply sources to the extent they're controlled by our biggest international foreign adversary which is the chinese communist party and that includes an embarrassingly high number of our, our 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 needs, our resources that we source, we get from the Chinese. They control. That means our hands are tied, just like the Germans vis-a-vis -vis the Russians, right? So, from a national security standpoint, we'd have a lot more freedom to operate on the international stage. But also, you know, the way that they mine these things and process them in China is, you know, could be using slave labor. It's the worst labor practices and environmental practices in the world. We have the best, so we would we would be we'd be could be a net exporter in responsible mining and production, um, but we would see a, a huge drastic impact here just in the economy, having jobs and attracting um, folks from all over the country for good high paying energy sector jobs on projects that could last decades to a lifetime to beyond. Um, 
it, it's going to re revitalize the economy because it's going to bring folks from all over. Now, will it have impacts in terms of lowering the price of EVs? I'm not sure that it will be something that dramatic because um, the Chinese are already doing it at bargain basement prices to keep other competitors out of the market, James. So when you control the world supply of any commodity, it gives you a double-edged sword, right? Number one, you can starve the people who depend on that resource at, at will by just turning off the supply, especially if you're the central centralized control of the Chinese Communist Party, where you exercise complete control over the industrial base. So you can say, you know, the United States doesn't get any rare earths or pharmaceuticals or N95 masks or whatever it is. That's one thing you can do. The other thing you can do is if somebody in another country starts starting a, a competitive, a competing mine, you can flood the market with a ton of product and, and bankrupt them because you price them out. So you, you flood the market, drive the price down, and then they can't they can't get investors to invest because there's no ROI for them. So when you control the whole market, it's a double-edged sword. It gives you massive amount of control. We need to break that monopoly and that hold. And we, when it, we talk about energy independence, it means not just hydrocarbons, but it means every aspect of the new economy as well. So we'd see a drastic change in the, I think, um, people moving here, development, quality of life, high-paying jobs, the economic status of Nevada as a state would, would rise and um, I think we'd be recognized as a global leader in the in the mining sector, um, and we'd have people from all over the world moving here. Absolutely. And so I wanted to shift a little bit. Uh, you talked about, you know, part of the reason that you ran is you, you want to have a better future for your kids. One of the hot topics in the media right now, the don't say gay bill, the CRT, everything that's going on in education. Nevada just hasn't had a good reputation when it comes to education. Corrupt uh, school districts taking basically 50 cents of the dollar uh, from going on to students uh, audits that are, you're seeing millions of dollars being lost and absolutely no, uh, basically absolutely no uh, consequences for those actions. Uh, you know, just such a hurt for teachers in, in Nevada that you're starting to see on those viral videos, these crazy teachers are getting into the system because we are hurting so bad for teachers um, with Nevada basically uh being hamstringed by federal dollars because of our, our, our tax infrastructure. Um, how do we fix that? Um, I guess from like a federal level, like, and being able to help, like, do you think that, um, uh, on an educational level, how do we, how do we fix some of these issues that are going on in Nevada, especially? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the situation with education is pretty terrifying. I mean, we wouldn't even have, recognize the issues that people are talking about, you know, 15 years ago um, as a possibility. And it's it's a losing issue for the Democrats to decide that their hill to die on from a policy perspective is their freedom to teach other people's little kids about, you know, sexual identity or, or homosexual, you know, identity or whatever the case may be. Because that's wildly unpopular among regular people, no matter what political persuasion, you know, Republican, Democrat, neither, something else. People aren't interested in that. People with kids are not interested in that. That's a turn. That's a turn. It's a It's a trans, you know, a transcendental turn off issue. People are not people are not interested in that. So really what it reveals is 
that first of all, people that need to understand that teachers unions are not working for kids. They're not advocates for kids. They're only advocates for teachers. I mean, if a teacher is accused of some some misconduct against a child in the classroom, the teachers unions backs this, the, the teacher against the child. That, that's that's their job. They exist for the teachers. They have that's why the teachers unions were, have been supporting school closures irrationally, which massively are harmful to kids. Ma forced masking of children and school closures. They want to get paid, not show up. It has nothing to do with your children. Okay, um, money for education that we collect through tax revenue is not the purpose of that money. Is not to pay teach government teacher salaries. The, pur the purpose of the money is to educate children. And people um, on the on the other side get very confused by this kind of fundamental distinction. They, they really believe that the money raised for education is actually earmarked for, te for government teacher salaries. And they feel like that the government teachers are entitled to that money. And when you, when you use that money more efficiently for the actual purpose, which is to educate students, if it's not going to government schools, they get angry because you're defunding public education. Well, first of all, if you school choice is the civil rights issue of the modern era, that's been, absolutely revealed here. I mean, when you have teachers in Florida who say, look, we don't teach this type of stuff to kids. And then, and then governor DeSantis says, fine, we'll just pass a bill that says you can't do it, but you know, you're not doing it. So no big, 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 big deal. And then they say, Oh, we quit. If we can't teach, you know, your, your little, you know, seven-year-old about the gender spectrum. It's like, what well, what were you doing there? If you, what, I mean, what was your purpose as a teacher to be there? If you won't, do it unless you can teach seven-year-olds about the gender spectrum. I, I just don't really understand like what your purpose, it just kind of shows that the bill was actually needed. But the reality is people are turned off by that. They want school choice and nobody's defunding public schools. If you give, you know, the money needs to follow the student, not the teacher. I mean, the Democrats emphasis is on one group and one group alone, which is the teachers unions. That's the only group they don't care about teachers generally. And they don't care about students at all because students, first of all, don't vote and have no money to contribute to campaigns. So the last group that they care about um, when it comes to the education debate is the students because they have no political clout. They kind of care about the, the parents, but they don't really care about the parents that much either. They really care about the teachers unions. They, they don't care about teachers generally because they don't care about private school teachers or charter school teachers or whatever. They just only care about the teachers unions. The teachers unions are corrupt to the core. They're aligned. The, they're, they're an ideological propaganda indoctrination agent along, you know, side by side with Planned Parenthood and, and other Marxist infiltrated organizations around the country that have been captured by Chinese influence to try to sow the seeds of Marxism. You know, critical race theory is literally just one form of Marxism. It takes the, it takes the paradigm you know, within which we've developed this whole entire functional Western civilization, which is the idea of right and wrong and replaces it and says that's obsolete. Right is whatever the government says and wrong is whatever the government says no. But they replace that with the operative dynamic for the lens through which they analyze any question is not right and wrong. It's rather it's oppression and victim. So everything is class. Everybody has to be defined and ordered in a hierarchy of the extent to which they possess some sort of privilege when you're talking about children who have no idea what you're you know any of this stuff they don't see that they don't think that way 
it's extremely offensive to parents and it's abusive to children. And these children are being used as ideological pawns in this big game of trying to implement um, Marxism and replace uh, our free liberal Western democratic institutions. But school choice is absolutely the way to do it. When, when the, the charter schools in Nevada outperform the public schools that are the government, the non, you know, the charter schools are our public schools, but they outperform the school district schools by a huge margin. They actually outperform national charter schools, the Nevada charter schools, and they're doing it on like 75% of the budget per student from the tax dollars. So it just, and by the way, when you, when you diversify the education choices, it actually rises all, all, all the performance goes up in studies for even in regular school district schools, their performance goes up as well because they're forced to compete when you introduce competition. So they, they actually do a better job, but you know, school choice, when, when you say, Hey, look, the, the, the parents have the opportunity to pick whatever works best for their kid. Um, that is not defunding. If a, if a parent says, look, my, my child will do better over here. They're, they're, why, why would you want to prevent them from being able to have the opportunity to make that choice for their child? Because the focus for you is not about the kid. It's about that, that government teacher. And from my perspective, my constituents are the kids. My constituents are the children. You know, I'm, as a dad, these are the most vulnerable people. They don't have a vote. They don't have, they don't have money to contribute to campaigns, but somebody's got to look out for them. And that's our job as parents. So school choice is absolutely um, essential education savings accounts that the, the Democrats got rid of here in the state of Nevada, which was going really well, but they, they immediately defunded that. They'll defund anything that competes with the monopoly on indoctrination that is possessed by the Marxist infiltrated school, um, the teachers unions. By the way, Clark County School District with whatever it is, more than 200,000 students, I don't know, 250,000 students. This is one of the problems as well. Um, it, there should be approximately 100 school districts within Clark County School District, okay? We shouldn't have, each, each, no school district should have more than about 2,500 students. I mean, if you're a parent and you're trying to get anything done at the Clark County School District, good luck, man. You're not going to, there is no possible way you're going to get an answer to your question or get any of your concerns addressed when you have an organization that massive and you're nobody you're nobody your kid you know your nine-year-old and your concern is not gonna make the top 10 for that organization okay so you're not going to get any answers you're not going to get any attention you're going to get rude arrogant responses or you're going to get neglect or you're not going to get an answer um, your interests don't matter that needs to be broken up to about 100 different school districts but not but you know from a federal perspective I'm, I'm, uh, my position is we need to absolutely 100% eliminate the federal department of education. Anyway, it's $20 billion a year. It's unconstitutional. There's no federal, there's no federal constitutional authority to have us central government activity and tax dollars devoted to a, a department of education. That's not, that's not in the constitution and it's not the role of the federal government to get involved. And, and James, this is how so much of this, this, this indoctrination is effectively forced um, on unwilling parents around the country as a federal department, you know, federal money, federal educate, education apparatus will say, look, we'll give you this grant and we'll call it whatever it is, COVID or anything. We'll give you this massive, massive grant of federal money, tax dollars from all over the country. 
for your school district. But in exchange, you need to meet these standards. You need to teach kids about, you know, transgenderism and critical race theory and whatever. And they'll, they'll do it. They'll say, okay, well, we want the, you know, we want the hundred million dollars. So we'll do it. That's how they do it. The school, the, the federal government should not be in education at all. There should be no department of education. You know, how do these colleges and universities around the country, by the way, as in a related question, which are openly partisan, conspicuously politically partisan, you know, they, they actively support polit openly act uh, political organizations like Black Lives Matter and others. Um, how how are, do they have tax exempt status? I don't understand how they enjoy tax exempt status under the Internal Revenue Code, because you're not allowed to be openly political and partisan if um, you um, are a political organization. And no, absolutely. And I, I, and I 100% agree with you. I, I was a student at UNLV. Uh, they have the Brookings Institute there, which is basically a liberal think tank that is basically taxpayer dollars going to an institution to push out liberal think tank papers about progressive policy in Nevada and elsewhere in the country. Um, and get and they also get to keep their tax rate uh, tax exempt status. So I, I definitely agree with you on that issue. Um, for me, I guess is with Nevada basically being so reliant on federal dollars for education, how do we take back our autonomy on our schools while, you know, keeping the funding for our school districts? Uh, obviously, you know, with how tourism works in Nevada, it's not, it's, it's not the most stable t tax revenue system, but how do we go about getting them out while keeping the funding in? Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, so th there's so much waste. I mean, you can, there's a huge market for private school. You know, you know how long the wait list is for charter schools? I mean, that's not private school, but charter schools, just to get out of this Clark County School District, there's waiting lists of thousands of students um, at, our, at our charter schools. And they get the job done with vastly less money, significantly less money. Um, we, the, the private schools that were, there's, there's a huge appetite for new private schools churches starting private schools or, you know, 20 students, we, we need to be able, and they can do it with vastly less money than is, than is being wasted by the school districts. Really what we need to do is let the money follow the student, allow students to choose, give them the, so I'll tell you what, if you gave parents an out, a, a, a voucher for 50% of the money that would otherwise be spent on their student, at the government school district school for 50%. They would go out and get a better education, even if they had to supplement a little bit, but they wouldn't have to in many cases. They would go out and get a better, more satisfying education for their child, more effective education at 50% of the cost, and the market would absolutely meet that need. We've seen the we've seen the appetite to get out of CCSD like you've never seen. And it varies by um, you know, all different groups. But the reality is people are absolutely panicked to get out of CCSD. They're panicked. I mean, they'll do anything to get out of CCSD and you can get a, you can get a quality education at half the per student cost. And so that's what I would say, it, you know, they just waste this money and it doesn't need to cost that much. The whole idea that we need to be relying on federal dollars, um, is, is, is not, is not the case. I mean, they want to become dependent on federal dollars to the extent that they can to fund massive indoctrination and, and special anti-racism training and curricula 
um, and consultants and, you know, uh, woke administrators and, and uh, diversity, equity and inclusion administrative administrative positions and roles um, and to stop enforcing discipline. Um, but the reality is it doesn't need to cost that much. And, and really, we could do it for vastly, vastly less. No, absolutely. And so kind of wanted to pivot on uh, one more topic. Um, so as a fellow veteran, uh, Nevada is in uh, a unique position of being the top 10 popula uh, populated states with, with veterans. I think there's about 200, 211,000 uh, veterans who, who live in Southern Nevada. And yet, you know, this is a vastly like understated group in uh, the state. I, I think if you told people that number, majority of people would be like, wow, I didn't realize that Nevada was in the top 10 for veterans. Um, and yet veteran healthcare, especially in Nevada and in other states, it's not just a Nevada issue, has just become so poor. You're looking at three to six uh, week waiting lists for just regular checkups and care. Um, I know when I had to go in for my disability rating, it was like a two month wait. And then on top of that, an additional three months for, uh, you know, getting uh, that rating certified, then additional paperwork had to be uh, revealed. I guess with a lot of that, especially uh, Democrats just aren't the greatest at treating our veterans, um, especially, you know, sending them to war. We got to make sure that we take care of them when we get back. How do we fix that, that kind of stuff um, at a federal level and make it and make it permanent? Because it seemed like the, the VA got a lot better under Trump and then immediately under Biden and went right back to its old corrupt ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I had the same experience. I mean, under the Trump administration, I had started using the VA quite a bit. Um, you know, I still have my, my private health insurance and I have my other doctors, but for certain things, I like to use the VA. We have that great hospital here and um, different community health clinics around. And, and I was really making use of those. Now, as you said, the wait lists have become so bad now. Um, you know, they've, they've really cut back on their, on their responsiveness and, um, you know, the first way that we need to honor veterans, honestly, from my perspective, from a mental health perspective, is to have some respect for their service, their sacrifice, what they've done by not not absolutely saying like, OK, well, you know, Afghanistan's done. So now we need a new war. Let's uh, send, you know, billions and billions of American taxpayer dollars and ultimately service members over to fight and die in Eastern Europe. That doesn't that doesn't honor the, the sacrifice that the veterans who came before actually fighting and, and um, putting their lives on the line for something that was worthwhile to the security of the United States of America. This is clearly some just split. We've seen this. We've seen this movie before, you know, those of us who, who served in the Iraq and Afghanistan generation, you know, when I, when I went, went into Iraq in 2003, we were told, yeah, there's, you know, there's an urgent need. It's an it's an exigent need. We must get in there. You know, national security, international order demands that the United States respond with an international coalition and depose Saddam and seize these weapons of mass destruction, biological, chemical weapons. And it was a bunch of lies. You know, I was there in the first wave of people in there really early on in 2003, and it was just you know we've seen this movie before. Um, that's what they're doing now with, uh, with Russia. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a moral panic. We must go and fight in Russia, uh, against Vladimir Putin for 
the people of Ukraine, I sub, I guess, is the argument. Um, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with you know being outraged and horrified. I think it's a natural reaction at seeing a country get invaded by a hostile, belligerent foreign aggressor, uh, especially in a, such a brutal manner. But at the same time, the question is, does is that in the in the national interest? The only you know, when people say, like, uh, as a veteran, my my job is to support justice around the world. I mean, or as a, as a service member, you know, my, my my appropriate role as an American service member is to fight for justice and equality around the world. First of all, you're wrong. That is not your job. Your job is to fight for the United States of America and its citizens, period. That's it. You're not there to go around and be some global enforcer. You're an American soldier. That's what your oath is to. That's what your allegiance to, is to. It's not to fight injustice around the world. So whoever told you that um, is wrong. That's not your job. That's not what you're getting paid to do. But second of all, and so, you know, like, for example, they, they found 14 plus billion dollars in like 24 hours, right, to send to Ukraine. I mean, the, the, the people who want to get us into war with with Russia and Ukraine are the same jokers an incompetent, incompetent, mediocre group of cowards like Mark Milley um, and Lloyd Austin, who completely made a disaster out of the Afghanistan withdrawal in the most in the most reprehensible and humiliating fashion. So when I talk about veterans and their mental health situations, don't do something like Afghanistan. You know, people who served there for 20 years, their whole careers from the time they enlisted until, until they take. They retire 20 years later as E-8s. They served in Afghanistan and on, on and off, you know, missing baseball games and birthdays. Then the Biden, Biden comes in and says, you know what? Those guys who were shooting at you and you were shooting at for 20 years, the Taliban, we just gave them $85 billion of your weapons. And the whole entire, we gave them Bagram that you, you know, you, 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 were, you were doing security, on, you were pulling security on Bagram for hours. We gave it to them. We gave them, you know, we gave them the embassy. And by the way, the Chinese are in there right now. Um, that doesn't that doesn't help people's mental health who served. I mean, that's a, that's a slap. That's an insult. To, and then now to say, well, we're lying to you again. We're going to set you up again. It's a moral panic. It's your job as soldiers to go and do the the political whims of an entirely corrupt regime in the Biden administration, which has got so many business dealings in Ukraine. They're disqualifying. The guy's disqualified as commander in chief. He's a national security threat because he's totally compromised by the communist Chinese and people all over the world. The guy's a massive national security threat. But no, we're that's you know that's that's no way to honor veteran sacrifice and service. But when veterans come back, and that's just a starting point. So treat treat people's service with respect by not treating them like just absolute garbage and, and their sacrifice. But the second thing is when people get out. We should have everybody should be assigned a battle buddy, uh, a veteran battle buddy. Like there should be a program where, you know, people who who already came came back and got out should be able to go to a training sponsored by the VA to become a certified battle buddy for somebody who's recently separating, and somebody like me should be um, paired up with a recently separating person who's here in Las Vegas, and I'll be their battle buddy for ninety days. The VA will give me some money. I'll meet with them. We'll go to lunch. We'll hang out, and I'll, I'll help that person, you know, transition in a battle body, a battle buddy model that we're accustomed to, as service as service members and veterans. So that's that's one of the things we need to do. But we also need to be able to get them community health care when the wait list at the VA is too long. Like 
under Trump, when I needed to get stuff done, I had to get a, a, a simple dermal, dermatological procedure to get a, a mole, a mole removed, you know, to look at to see if it's like cancerous, you know, um, melanoma, you know, because if you get too much sun, you could, you could get skin cancer. And so they want to look at a mole. So they, they said, okay, well, we're, we don't have any, any opportunity to get that for you through the VA system and within the next month. So they sent me out in, in Vegas to a, a really nice place and they, they, they did it, they did it there in the community. It was only like a one week, you know, wait. Um, so they have to be able to overflow into the community healthcare and that the VA needs to be able to, to arrange that and secure that healthcare for veterans when the services aren't available in a reasonable time by the VA. Um, you know, the other thing they need to do is be flexible to accommodate veterans own personal medical autonomy. You can't say, well, you're required to get a vaccine, just like service members, um, you know, an experimental unapproved, unlicensed medical product in order to get services. We're not, we're not going to, I mean, that that's, that's outrageous uh, again. So we need to, we need to, if we took the money, we spent four, as I said, James, we couldn't get four million, four billion dollars to complete the wall at the southern border over the course of four years. They, they couldn't get four billion dollars with all Republicans, right? Twenty-four hours, they found fourteen billion dollars that doesn't exist. There is no fourteen billion dollars sitting around like in an account. They said fourteen billion dollars that doesn't exist. We're going to send to one of the most corrupt countries in the world, where all these politicians' kids have gotten rich off the corruption, including the Bidens and others, Mitt Romney's kids and others. We're going to send $14 billion to this incredibly corrupt country in 24 hours. But they couldn't get $4 billion to complete the wall at our own border over the course of several years. Shows you where these coward, traitorous priority, priorities lie. These people don't have no concern about the American people, American families and businesses and prosperity, security in the United States. These people need to go. And I've been the most openly as the only veteran in this race. And the only person that's served in a combat theater in this race, I've been the most openly anti-war this whole thing because it's obviously you have to be insane not to recognize how clearly this is just a distraction that they're using for political expedience. They don't care about Ukraine. They care about themselves. They care about covering up their crimes, their corruption. They care about they care about their political fortunes. They do not care about soldiers. They do not care about, you know, American American families. They care about themselves. Let's understand that we're in no position to go to war. We have $30 trillion in debt. We're getting invaded at the southern border. We got new COVID coming that they were already telling us is coming. Gas prices are at record high, and they want to go to war with the same group of incompetent criminals who ruined the Afghanistan situation. Give me a break. You want to go to war with a nuclear-armed Russia that has a larger nuclear arsenal than the United States of America with Joe freaking Biden as the commander in chief, you out of your freaking mind. You, 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 you come to me with that stuff. Just go away. You're a complete insane person. I mean, that is not happening. And absolutely. And so uh, you brought up a good point. And uh, as a candidate that I know is not afraid of a soundbite, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop is a huge thing. Uh, we're finding out more and more stuff. Um, it looks like Republicans this election cycle. I want to knock on wood because Republicans have a history of uh, grabbing uh, defeat from the jaws of victory, but it looks like they're going to take the majority uh, in the House and then the Senate. Would you uh, support an investigation not only into Hunter Biden, but Joe Biden's dealings uh, with the laptop? And if it came to it, would you support impeachment of the president? 
So, James, I, I drafted impeachment articles against Joe Biden a long time ago. They've been on my website for months. Um, I think Joe Biden is a traitorous criminal. I don't think he's the president of the United States. I think he stole the election. He's breaking the law at the southern border. He destroyed the Afghanistan situation. He destroyed the United States economically. He destroyed the COVID response. The criminality with Fauci and the vaccines is legend, legendary. This guy is working for the communist Chinese. He's completely compromised. He's a traitor and a fool. Okay. So he needs to be impeached. Yeah, but he's going to resign, James. He's not going to be there because... The Hunter Biden laptop story you can't walk away from. There's so much evidence of rampant criminality there implicating Hunter, okay? The media, of course, got this fool elected because they covered up the story. 16% of the people who voted for Biden in a poll said that they would have their decision would have been materially affected if, had they known the true scope and extent of what was on there. But that, you know, being that as what is it, what, you know, setting that aside, I mean, the, the media's complicity in what, what we're experiencing right now um, is the Hunter Biden laptop evidence cannot be ignored. There's massive evidence of criminality. The, 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 the Merrick Garland's Justice Department hasn't done anything because they don't know what to do yet. They're trying to plan it out because they got to work all these moving pieces together. So they got to get they got to get us into war World, World War Three. That's not that's not an option. We must go to World War Three on a moral panic. I mean, first of all, you have to understand that Democrats don't have no ability to govern you through the normal political processes because their ideas are terrible and no one likes them. So the only way they can govern is through crises. So it's a serial crises. That's the only way they get any of their, all their agenda that they got through in the last two years has been a consequence of using some emergency justification due to COVID. Okay. Literally everything that they've done that's destroyed the country has been a consequence of being able to say, oh, it's a COVID emergency, so we don't have to follow the process. Because if they had to follow the process, no one would do anything for them. They can't win elections because no one no one likes their ideas because their ideas are terrible. So they have to cheat in elections, which they do. They lie and cheat and steal elections because they have no constituents. They, their constituents are they have they have they have they have institutional clients. They don't have constituents who are voters. They have institutions. Their clients are Wall Street, big pharma, big tech the Chinese Communist Party, and potentially the Mexican drug cartels. Those are the clients who they work for. They don't work for American people. So in order for them to get their policies advanced, they have to have one crisis after another. They have to have one war after another. You know, right on cue, Afghanistan's over because China said, get out of Afghanistan, Joe. And he said, okay. Because China has a 47-mile border with, with Afghanistan. That was a bulwark against Chinese westward expansion across the rest of the Eurasian continent all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, which they're 100% on the way to doing through their Belt and Road Initiative. They already have Pakistan. Now they've got Afghanistan and it'll be Syria, Iran and Syria and all the way to the Mediterranean from the Pacific to the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean. So this is what Biden had to do for his masters, you know, in China, the Chinese communists for whom he works. So, but, but, you know, if you look at, um, if you if you look at the way they govern, they only do through crisis. So Afghanistan's over. So now they need a, they need a new war. So we got to have we got to have Russia now, but and they got to have crises after crisis. Look, COVID, we're done with COVID, right? We're not done with COVID because now they're going to come up with a new one. There's going to be a new COVID. You already got 30, 30 million people in China and under lockdown for some some type of illness. We don't know what it is. Hope hope to God it's not something other than a COVID type respiratory upper respiratory virus and not something much worse we don't know but we'll never know 
because these people lie constantly. They're going to have a new crisis coming down to screw up the voting again as a cover for them to do the same thing and cheat and steal that they always do and destroy the country systematically because they're criminals. They're not. It's not a legitimate political party. Um, which what I've been saying, it's not a legitimate political party. It's just a policy organ for hire to the highest institutional interest. And all of our administrative state is completely captured by corp- corporate interest. Pfizer, the FDA works for Pfizer and Moderna, right? They don't work for us. I mean, all these institutions are pervasively corrupt and maybe irreparably corrupt. We have complete agency institutional capture, you know, complete capture. So the, 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 you know, I forgot what your question was. I was ranting. I'm sorry, but no, we need to save the country. <laughs> we need to save the country, basically. You're good. Uh, so one thing I wanted to ask you, kind of running short on time. I know this is an issue for me when I lived there, and um, I know this is a lot of issue for a lot of other Republicans that live in the district. Uh, we've just been plagued with bad Republican candidates uh, in the Congressional District 3. You know, Dan Roadmeyer, Joe Heck, John Porter, uh, Danny Tarkane, and a failed candidate over and over again. Um, and we just can't seem to beat this idiot that is Susie Lee, uh, who has no ideas or policies. I know I talked to her one time. She didn't even know what the Electoral College was. Um, how do we set, so what's, what's the, what's, can Republicans win again in CD3 and what makes, um, Noah much different than these establishment or failed Republican candidates? Um, and why, why does, why should CD3 rally around you? That's kind of what I wanted to finish it off on. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, just, okay. So this, I, I, I tell you exactly where I'm coming from on every single issue to down to the smallest detail and what I'm going to do. And I have policy, I have policy prescriptions for every issue I identify. Okay. That's in contrast to the other candidates. Most, most of the other candidates, uh, not all of them, but, but, you know, certainly um, some of the other candidates have, are, we're reluctant, will not do it, are loath to do it because they want to afford themselves wiggle room to figure out whatever position is most politically expedient for them after they get elected, right? I don't do that because I want people to know exactly what I'm all about, how I see things, and then they tell them where I stand so they can hold me accountable. And I have prescriptions for every single issue. I'm the most America first candidate in this race without without uh, apology or hesitation. I'm the only candidate in the race who was identified by Salon and Vox and the left-wing media as one of the most dangerous GOP candidates in the entire country in 2022 because I'm coming for them and to expose them and hold them accountable for stealing elections and January 6th and reign of criminality that they've, that they're at waging a civil war against the free people of the United States of America. So we got to fight back. But number two, I'm the, I'm the only veteran in this race. I'm the only one that's been in a combat theater in this race. And we're entering a time now where we need folks who have that experience, that expertise, that background. I mean, I've lived internationally. I've practiced law on three different continents. I have some perspective. I was an army plans officer. I know how to make these decisions and what the, when, what the considerations are. Um, I'm really concerned about some of the other folks in this environment because we're having zero, zero leadership from, um, the, from the administration that we can trust on foreign relations and military situation questions. Uh, and so that means that Congress is going to have to take a bigger role in terms of uh, foreign policy sanctions bill against China that really has teeth and insisting upon playing a role as the Congress and 
um, any expenditures to support foreign nations getting involved in international conflicts or sending troops abroad. We can't let the Biden administration continue to destroy America and surrender. I mean, no longer is the Democratic Party presiding over the managed, slow, managed decline of the United States. It's now just torched, scorched earth. They're just trying to destroy the country. Every revered institution, the military, the dollar, you know, our education system, the border, they want to destroy the country, small businesses, whatever it is, the family, um, our security in our, in our cities and towns and our neighborhoods. This, I'm the only candidate who goes out there and puts myself out there and says these things because I don't care. The stakes are too high. This is not about me. It's not a game. Um, I'm not out there, you know, selling ice cream or whatever the case may be, because that's not what this is about, folks. This is about freedom and the, the, whether or not you want to have a free country for your kids or you want this whole entire American experiment to be over here in the next decade, which is exactly where we're headed. So we need folks who are, you know, are going to tell you exactly what's going on and are not afraid. And uh, I think I'm the only one in the race who really fits that description. Absolutely. I love it. Noah, the candidate of Water Street, not of Wall Street. I love it. Um, so, Noah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if people want to get more information, it's noahfornevada.com. Uh, make sure you go check him out. Um, I will post links in the in description of this podcast episode. But, Noah, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, James. Really appreciate it. All right.